If you have a Bible, you can please open it to the book of Joel is where we'll be. It's about three-fourths of the way through your Bible. It's a little small prophetic book there. The, the prophet Joel is what we will be looking at. Jeremiah, about Jeremiah, Ezekiel, uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, Daniel, Hosea, and then Joel. All right? We're looking at Joel chapter 1 this morning. I want to say one thing about the announcement as we were, as we were going through them there. There's the announcement about our basketball nights. We do need volunteers. We need those who can... We have some... You don't have to have a lot of basketball skills. That's not the... We need volunteers to watch over kids, be some coaches, be some instructors and different things like that. But it's not going to require heavy basketball skills, all right? But here's what we do need. Because we're having to... And a good, a good thing we're having to do is they're adding some added security in terms of a... A, a scan that you have to get for like uh, background checks and things like that through the Boys and Girls Club, which is only a better way to safeguard for the children. We're going to have to, everyone who volunteers is going to have to go through that process. So the sooner uh, that you can sign up and let us know you're going to be commit to be a volunteer, the better off we can get things done and prepare, okay? Because there's a little process there. So please, if you're thinking about it, you have questions, please reach out to us so we can get you signed up, answer your questions. We need to get the ball moving on that quickly so that we can get our teams and our volunteers together, okay? So please do that. If you're interested, please reach out to us so we can get uh, going in that direction. Now, like most of you, my, my journey to faith, my journey of faith, uh, has not been on a, a straight path in no way. Uh, but God, uh, the theme of the Lord in my life has been his patience, and his long-suffering with my sin. At age 19, I heard the message of the gospel, and by God's grace, I, I responded by faith. And though I had heard the gospel countless, hundreds of times before, it was then that God opened my eyes to the seriousness of my sin and the sweetness of the Lord Jesus and His work upon the cross. And I was saved. God rescued me from the bondage of my sin and the lifestyle that I was so entangled in. And there was a real sweet season of joy of my salvation. But yet due to my lack of discipleship and accountability, my heart was soon lured away by the deception of this world. I did not write reject Jesus. I still love Jesus. I just, if I'm honest, my affection for myself and my sin uh, sadly became stronger than my Savior. And yet God in His grace continued to pursue me. One sunny afternoon, he issued a wake-up call to me. As I was uh, lounging on a Florida beach, enjoying the debauchery of my lifestyle, a, a stranger, someone that seemed to appear out of nowhere, approached me. He seemed to come out of the shadows of the beach tent. I don't know where he really came from, but he, he showed up and he engaged me directly. And though our conversation was short, it was... It was one that would forever shape my life going forward. Now, this stranger's words were, they were kind, they were direct, and they were piercing. Because he asked me some of the most important questions a person can be asked. And in the midst of my sinful rebellion, is the only way I can describe it, his questions sunk deep into my soul. And then as abruptly as our conversation began, it was over. He headed down the Florida beach, the Florida shoreline, for us to never meet again. But this stranger, this man whom I had never met, served as a wake-up call to me. For the next four weeks, we're going to be working our way through this little book, this little prophetic book of, of Joel, which derives its name from the man who penned it, the prophet Joel. And his words are short, his words are direct, and his words are piercing. And in many ways, Joel, I think, functions like that man on the beach did for me. He seems to emerge out of nowhere. Like We don't really know very much about Joel. Everything we know about him, our sister read this morning. From verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. I'm glad you pronounced that so well, because now I know how to say it. But unlike other prophetic books, we're, we're not provided any clues to the dating of this book. 
There's no kings mentioned. There's no specific events, nations that we can tie the book to, the the events that are happening. And because of this, really theories regarding the dating of this book are very diverse. Uh, But he does seem to just really emerge out of nowhere on the scene. But his message is very clear. Like the man I encountered on the beach, Joel appears on the scene of redemptive history to issue a brief but yet direct wake-up call to the people of God by asking the most important questions of life. And then as soon as he begins, Joel's finished. Never to really hear of him in the Bible again. The prophet writes in a very difficult time in the nation's history. And the difficulty is the result of a, a plague or a massive swarm of locusts which has devoured the land. And the people find themselves in a, in a place of, of great need, a place of extreme difficulty. But it's a place from which God intends to instruct them. He intends to wake His people up. And the devastating destruction of the locusts is meant to point the people beyond it to the providential purposes of God in redemptive history. And His providential purposes are contained in this phrase that we're going to see over and over again in every chapter. And it's really the phrase that we're using to kind of sum up our study as a whole, the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord, this phrase forms the the center of the prophet's message. In this moment of great need, with all the people's resources dried up, God intends to instruct them concerning who He is and how He operates in history. With that being the case, us not knowing really the, with us not knowing the particular context of this book, I honestly think it aids us in interpreting this book, because it really does it really does widen the door of application for each of our lives. Instead of trying to point to a specific moment in history and trying to understand the significance of that for our lives, the door is really wide for us here. And the reality is, times of need and great difficulty befall all of us. And they expose us. And they can instruct us. And they can, in fact, wake us up. For it's moments of great need and difficulty when things are all shaken up, when the clutter of our lives seems to be removed or snatched away from us, and we are forced to answer the most pressing questions of life. Who or what do we ultimately trust in? Where are we looking for security and satisfaction? That's the questions of the prophet Joel. Maybe you've been there through the loss of a job, maybe the loss of finances, maybe the loss of a relationship, maybe the loss of life of a loved one. Maybe just a difficult and distressing moment, a season of your life. In those moments, the reality is, the source of our trust and our hope is often exposed. So as we begin this study, we all need to consider this morning. Who or what are we trusting in? For life present now? And for life eternal. Where are we looking for security and satisfaction for our souls? It's those questions the prophet turns to in this book. And I believe he provides us with an answer this morning in chapter 1 and the rest of this short book here. And here's the answer I want us to see this morning as we wrestle with. So that as God's people our security and satisfaction for this life and the next come solely through trusting in the grace of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. As God's people, our our security, our, our satisfaction for right now in this moment, this life, the things that come upon us, and for the next one, eternity, it comes solely through us trusting, through us resting, and the grace of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Now, like a, like a skilled movie director, the prophet pans the scene in this opening chapter to survey the destruction and devastation in high-def detail. What's revealed is a, a scene of unimaginable destruction. Put your eyes on verse 4. It says what the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. What the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Destruction and decimation has come. And while the, the threat of locusts may not seem much to us, it was common and really a fearful thing in this culture. So common, in fact, scholars point out there are nine different nouns in the Hebrew language to describe locusts. It was a real thing for them. And the description of cutting, swarming, hopping, and destroying locusts depicts both the size and the, devast the devastating nature of this swarm. I don't think it's a reference to probably different types of locusts, but instead locusts at different stages of life which a swarm would bring about, rapidly multiplying. Locusts which are similar to large grasshoppers, they didn't emerge into life flying. They developed the ability to fly and really the, the ability to swarm together after they were hatched from their eggs. And to give an idea of, of just how enormous these swarms could be, a single locust could lay 90 to 150 eggs that takes 10 to 20 days to hatch. So they say a large swarm is said to easily consist of well over a million locusts. A small swarm is said, maybe half that size, is said to consume the amount of food in a day as 10 elephants or 2,500 humans. In 1889, a report, it was reported that a swarm of locusts was found over the Red Sea that estimated to cover about 2,000 square miles. Well, we have no idea, we're not given any numbers to describe the size or the significance of the swarm. We, we, we have a lot of detail of the destruction that seems to match that. Joel speaks of the destruction of vine and fig tree. He speaks of the stripping of bark and the whitening of branches. He speaks of fields that are, that are described as destroyed and the, the ground, he says, is mourning. Pomegranate, palm, apple trees are all dried up due to the swarm of locusts that he compares to a powerful, large army in verse 6, overpowering a city. But the point of it all is this. There's, there's a lesson to be learned. And the lesson is not necessarily about locusts. The prophet addresses the elders in verse 2. Look at it. He says, hear this, you elders. Give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it and let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. Whether this term elder is in reference to official leadership or just those advanced in age, the call is the same. Right? These elders are called to, to do two things. Give ear. Listen. Pay attention. And proclaim. Tell. The destruction is meant to teach the people lessons they are to pass down to the future generations. And, and these lessons come with force. No less than 17 words of command found in this opening chapter. And what's taking place is no small matter as the rhetorical questions make clear, right? Then uh, he instructs those of the most, with the most life experience to consider if they've ever seen something like this in their days or if they've ever heard something of this in their father's days. Unspeakable uh, devastation is taking place. That's the point. And Joel wants to make clear that God, the whole book, God is not absent from the destruction described. He's present in every moment, on every page. And He is graciously teaching His people something through it. These locusts point to the coming great day of the Lord when both God's judgment and salvation will be revealed. And the destruction of the locusts serves as a test. We might say a series of tests exposing the people's readiness or lack thereof of what lies ahead. So two movements will serve as our outline this morning. I want to try to keep it very simple. We're going to first survey the scene of testing as I see it and then consider the call of God's people. 
So first, the scene of testing. There are, uh, there's a series of tests, uh, uh, as I see embedded in this text this morning. And these tests come by way of specific groups of people the prophet addresses through a series of commands. The first group is found in verses 5 through 7 where he addresses the people's pleasure. He says, Awake, you drunkards, and weep and wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are lion's teeth, and it has the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. Drunkards, like gluttons in the Bible, were those who used the land in excess. And what they consumed in excess, the prophet says, is about to be, is fixing to be, has been snatched away. Or as he says, cut off from their lips. So, with the grapevines devoured by the locusts, the, the wine bottles, they're dried up. Drunkenness in the Bible depicts the self-indulgent. It's the one who is unconcerned with the things of God. And these locusts are intended to serve as a wake-up call to this group. But that's not the only group mentioned here. We have drunkards, but then what? All you drinkers of wine who are called to wail or cry out in misery. Now this description, it's important we point out, would include essentially the entire population of Israel during this time. Wine was frequent. It was there with every meal. So the point of this test is not wine itself. The prophet is not issuing a call to prohibition in the land. While drunkenness is always depicted as a sin in the Bible and something characteristic of those outside the people of God, wine itself is considered a gift from God in the Bible. An evidence of God's blessing in the Old Testament. Psalm 104.15 speaks of wine coming from the hand of, of God to gladden the heart of man, it says. Wine consumption is not the real issue. But honestly, drunkenness is not either. Self-indulgence and pleasure-seeking is. This plague of locusts presents the people with a test as to where they are seeking to find real pleasure. Are they seeking to find their pleasure in God? Or in the benefits that God provides them? This destruction has a this destruction which has decimated the land, it says, as a, as, a, as a powerful army, as deadly as the fangs of a lion, verse 6 says, serves as a means of exposing the people's pursuit of pleasure. And of course, the door of application swings wide here in our lives. Maybe it's wine and the pleasantries of life for you. But maybe it's sport. Maybe it's exercise. Maybe it's the constant desire for vacations. It could be a whole myriad of other things in our culture where we tend to, to seek finding lasting pleasure outside of God. Do you find pleasure in God? Maybe an odd question for you to consider. But it's an important one. As believers, we, we live in a culture where we are tempted to spend hours upon hours of of time filling our lives with counterfeit pleasures, which will never satisfy us. But do we understand God as the ultimate source of our pleasure? Do we enjoy spending time with Him? Is there a pleasure to us in prayer, studying the Word? Do we understand Him to be the, the source and substance of where our heart's desires are to be found? Joe issues a wake-up call here. Asking the people, asking us to consider our pleasure. He's pointing us to the truth of Psalm 1611. In God's presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand is pleasures forevermore. The second test here though, is a test of security as well in verses 8 to 12. And this begins broadly, I think, addressing the nation as a whole in 8 through 10. But then it, it narrows in in verse 11 and 12 to the, the tillers of the soil. But both of those are set up by a very graphic illustration in verse 8. Look at it. It says, Lament like a virgin, wearing sackcloth for the bride of her youth. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn, the ministers of the Lord. The fields are destroyed, the ground mourns. Because the grain is destroyed, the wine dries up, the oil 
languishes. The imagery of a, maybe you have maiden or a virgin, is often used of Israel in the Scriptures. Joel commands the nation to lament, to mourn, wearing sackcloth like a bride for her bridegroom of her youth. In the ancient world, marriage took place in two stages. There was a betrothal and there was the consummation. Similar to what we think of as engagement, but at the same time completely different. For betrothal was permanent and binding. Right? This is why this explains the language of Joseph wanting to marry, uh, divorce Mary, though he had only betrothed her, the text says, by the time of the consummation of the Holy Spirit. Right? He was only betrothed her, but he uses the language of divorce. It was a binding relationship. So the pain and grief des- described here is of a young woman, of a young virgin, who's been betrothed to her lover. But before the consummation of their marriage can take place, death snatches her lover away. And all the anticipation and loving excitement of the embrace of her husband is gone. Rather than being wrapped in the beauty of her wedding gown, she's to be covered in sackcloth. She's to wail, not in celebration of a wedding, but wail in pain for the loss of her lover. And this loss goes much deeper than just a loss of intimacy on her part. Marriage in the ancient culture served as a sense of security. Income and inheritance and stability came by way of marriage in the ancient world. So the loss and pain depicted here is deep. The security she sought in the embrace of her lover has been snatched from underneath her. And it's to such deep mourning and to serious grief the prophet calls the people forcing them to consider where is their true source of security? This test of security goes a bit deeper in a more pointed way in verse 11. He says, Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil. Wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field has perished. He says, The wine dries up. The fig tree languishes. Pomegranate, palm, apple, all the trees of the field are dried up. And gladness dries up from the children's Children of man. Who's described here are those who work the fields to provide for themselves. And their shame is called for due to the fruit of their work drying up. But the fruit drying up has caused something else to dry up here in the text, it says. Did you see it? It says, as the fruits, as the fields dried up, the people's hearts are dry. Gladness dries up from the children of man, the end of verse 12 says. Or the CSB translation says, indeed, human joy has dried up. The KJV, the King James says, joy has withered away from the sons of man. So the prophet is here exposing by this test, I think, a connection between the things of God and the heart of man. Right? His focus on grain, wine, and oil, which is repeated here, highlights this. These three are coupled all over in the Old Testament, testifying to God's provision and blessing for His people. It's God provides, and His evidence of provision is seen often through grain, wine, and oil. When rebuking the people of Israel in the book of Hosea, the Lord says, She did not know that it was I who gave her grain, wine, and oil. Chapter 2, verse 8. In other words, the Lord saying, I provided for her. And yet, as Hosea's message is, she went after other lovers. Or Psalm 104.15 says, we read of God providing, as the text I read earlier, wine to gladden the man of heart, to to gladden the, the, the heart of man. Oil to make his face shine. And grain, bread, to strengthen man's heart. So the blessings of the land which these people partook in, as the people of God, were to testify to the gracious provision and satisfaction that only God offered Himself. It was to point to His goodness and His provision where their security was to reside. In fact, notice how God describes these back in verse 6 and 7. He speaks of what? My land. My vine. My fig tree. God graciously provides His people with His resources that they need. Security is to be found in God and God alone. The fruit of the ground was meant to produce gladness in the heart of man for their God. The prophet presents a test here. To whom or what 
Are you trusting him? He's, he's presenting them a test. Are you trusting that when these things have been snatched, when the provision of God's been snatched and the joy of your heart dried up as well, he's testing them. He's presenting a test to them. Are you seeking to find security in the provider himself or in the provision he graciously offers to us? It's a test of the heart. It's a test of the heart we need to hear this morning as well. Where is our security to be had, brothers and sisters? We live in a world of stuff. We live in a culture where we're called to, where we're called to, to, to gain stuff and to build our little kingdoms. But when gas prices rise, when our 40K doesn't do so well, when our bank accounts are in the red, why do our hearts get anxious? Why do we start to worry and struggle? We panic. And by so doing, we demonstrate where we understand our security to be found. The words of the prophet Habakkuk come to mind here who said, speaking of a similar desolation in the land, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herds in the stalls. He says what? Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, Yahweh the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. It's a test here to the people. Where is their trust? Where are they trusting in? Where are they looking to for their security and satisfaction? This pulling away of the produce of the land, of the, the destruction that these locusts has brought, exposes some things in their hearts. So there's a scene here that brings testing. But there's also a call of God's people. So what makes us as the, what makes us the people of God is it's not that we don't sin. It's not that we don't struggle to trust the Lord and find security in Him. What makes us the people of God is how we respond to the sin and the struggle that's in our heart. In the rest of this chapter, the prophet calls the people to respond in a specific and serious manner to demonstrate that they, in fact, are the people of God. He says, put on sackcloth and lament, O priest. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in, pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God, because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of our God. He calls... His aim goes to the religious leaders. He calls the priests to lament, the ministers of the altars to wail, the ministers of God to pass the night in mourning clothes, literally to exchange their royal priestly robes for sackcloth and to mourn. And they're to do this because the worship of the house of God is threatened. Without grain, there are no grain offerings. Without wine, there are no drink offerings. And, and as the locusts devour all vegetation, there's no pasture for the animals necessary for sacrifices, verse 18 says. The, bird, the beast and the flocks of the sheep, they suffer. But this, is, this is a reminder to all of us that there is no unspiritual area of your life. That is a dangerous game you can play. You have some spiritual areas of your life and then you compartmentalize things and try to keep the Lord out. Every aspect of our life affects the worship of God. And every sin we commit affects our worship of God. And the more we hide our sin, the more we refuse to deal with our sin, the further we remove ourselves from the realm of worship. We can practice religion for sure. But without dealing with our sin, we cannot truly worship a holy God. Worship requires honest hearts. So in verse 14, the Lord calls the people to respond. He says, consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and, and cry out to the Lord. Joe again returns to the elders here to call a fast for the entire assembly, he says. Everyone in the land is to come to the house of God. 
And they're to fast and cry out to Yahweh. No light-hearted plea is acceptable. Immediate and serious action is, determined, is, is demanded by God's people here. And verse 15 tells us why. Look at it. Alas, for the day. For the day of the Lord is near. And as destruction from the Almighty it comes. Is not the food cut off before our eyes? Joy and gladness from the house of God? The seed shrivels under the clods. The storehouses are desolate. The granaries are torn down because the grain has dried up. How the beast groan. The herds of the cattle are perplexed. Even there is no pasture for them. Even the flocks of sheep suffer. People are called to fast, to lament, to cry out to their God because the day of the Lord is near. The prophet's words in verse 15 are a fusion of two other prophetic texts. Ezekiel 30 verse 2 where we read, Wail, alas for the day, for the day will soon be here. Yahweh's day will soon be here. And then Isaiah chapter 13 verse 16 where it says, Wail, because Yahweh's day will soon be here. It is coming with mighty ruin from the Almighty. Everything Joel says and describes concerning the destruction of the locust is meant to point the people to the day of the Lord that is approaching. Like the rest of the prophets, it's important we recognize this, and we'll deal with this phrase throughout the book. Like the rest of the prophets, Joel points to the day of the Lord as both a present occurrence and a future event in which God issues His final judgment. So the locust is a day of the Lord here in the text. But it's a day of the Lord that foreshadows a, a greater day to come. A great and powerful people are coming. It's chapter 2 will describe, to send the nation into exile out of the land. Now the introductory word here, alas, tells us a lot about what is meant by this phrase, the day of the Lord. The word, uh, it depicts or it reflects the sound of wind being forced out of a person after a, a hard blow to the, to the midsection, the stomach. Right? It's a distinct sound of extreme pain. So the, the day of the Lord is a time when God expresses His sovereign rule through His eradication of His enemies and the deliverance of His people. But Joel points to something deeper here. Or at least he applies that reality in a deeper way. He says the people are to mourn and lament and call a solemn assembly because the day of the Lord is coming not just upon the enemies of God, but upon them. For the sin deserving the destruction of the Almighty is just as present in the people, in the land, as in their enemies. And this plague of locusts is God's gracious means of exposing that truth before the people and trying to prepare them for what's coming. The self-indulgent pursuit of pleasure the idolatrous heart that tries to find security and happiness in the things of this world, and the dry, dead worship, characteristic of the nation surrounding them, of the, of the enemies of God, He's exposing to them as just as present in the land amongst you. The word of warning by the prophet here is meant to awaken God's people to this truth. And you know, that tendency to call down God's judgment upon others without taking honest stock of our hearts, is a danger for us as well. Right, looking out at the landscape of our culture, it's easy to apply the day of the Lord, right? To all kinds of things. We have all kinds of things going in our culture. All sorts of debauchery going on that the day of the Lord is coming for. And we wouldn't be wrong to point that out. But brothers and sisters, the book of Joel is written to the people of God. Not to any nation. Definitely not America. To see application of this book solely as for those people out there would be to miss its point altogether. And it would be to distort the power of the gospel that's contained in this book. Brothers and sisters, just consider the church in our nation today. 
weekly, it seems, prominent leaders are marked by sexual scandal. Division and tribalism marks the American church. I pray we never go through another couple years like the last two. It was painful. It was difficult. And it exposed some things if we're willing to learn from them. It exposed what we truly are trusting in. It exposed what our security is so very sadly often rooted in. It exposed that corporately. It exposed that personally. Brothers and sisters, the prophet is clear here. And we need to hear this. The day of the Lord is not our day. It's the Lord's day. And the Lord, Yahweh, acts according to His sovereign purposes as He sees fit. That's what makes Him God. And He will eradicate all that stands in opposition to Him. But He will also provide a way of escape for those who respond the way He calls them to as the prophet calls here. Brothers and sisters, Christian worship is far more than continual exuberant praise. Worshiping as the people of God demands we deal with our sin. This will include times of mourning and lamenting the depth of our depravity before God. A true worship of the triune God by sinners requires honesty concerning who He is and who in fact we are apart from Him. The reality is our our praise can only go as high as the honesty, as the depth of the honesty of our sin. Our honesty about our sin is what fuels the height of our hallelujah. Because true worship only takes place at the end of ourselves. And when we honestly assess our hearts before God, we come to the recognition that our only hope of escape from His just judgment due our sin is His mercy on our behalf. Which the prophet leads the people to in verse 19. Now look at verse 19. Using first person language, Joel offers a, a, what we might see here is a, a representative prayer for the people. Joel's just not praying for himself. He's the prophet of the people. He's offering them, he's modeling for them The prayer that they need to to call out. And it contains a single line of of petition followed by two lines of lament. It says, Oh, to you, O Lord, I call. For fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. And flame has burned all the trees of the field. Even the beasts of the field pant for you because the waters are dried up. And fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. The prophet speaks Honestly and humbly here. Destruction from the locusts and drought has devoured the land and livestock. And he pleads with God on behalf of the people. And he pleads in a manner of the the beast of the field. He says they pant for, for Yahweh. And this short petition in the first line comprised of really just four simple Hebrew words. We find the heart of this chapter We find the center of the gospel message here. To you, O Lord, I call. Joel makes clear that God and God alone is where help can be found. And our only hope of escape is in the covenant faithfulness of our God. The Lord, Yahweh. Like, Joel does not call upon El Shaddai, God Almighty, which he just referenced, speaking of the day of the Lord. He doesn't call upon that name. He calls upon Yahweh, the Lord, the covenant name of God. Joel pleads, this this shows that Joel is pleading here, upon the mercy and the grace of God, who rescued his people from Egypt. By strong and mighty arm. He pleads to Yahweh, the gracious and merciful God who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love for His people. 
Brothers and sisters, we are the people of God solely because of the grace of God. Nothing else can be added to that. We can say with confidence, we are the people of God, but only because of the grace of God. That's the message of the gospel. That's the message of Joel. He's awakening the people to that reality. And he's awakening the people to that reality that they must cling to God's grace. This day of the Lord in these locusts, we're meant to point to the coming day of the Lord when judgment will fall upon his people in the exile. We're going to see in chapter 2, blow a trumpet in the land. Sound an alarm. There's a grave army coming. He's telling them that their only hope of escape is the grace and mercy of God. Their trust must remain in Him. Their security must be rooted in Him. In God and God alone. That's His words here. To you, O Lord, I call. Now it's very interesting that in Acts chapter 2, Peter quotes these very words. In his first sermon, following the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus, in the first apostolic sermon, in Acts chapter 2, verse 21, quoting the prophet Joel, it says, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord who is Peter speaking of? The Lord Jesus, the resurrected Christ. Every person who calls upon the name of Christ shall be saved. Peter knew that the day of the Lord spoken of in the prophets pointed forward to the great day of the Lord. When God would again pour out His judgment, not just on His people, but on His Son on behalf of His people. The true Jesus, the true Son, the true Israel. As God's very own Son, Jesus bore the full judgment of God due His people. That the grace and tender mercy of our God, that His deliverance and rescue would be made available to us. All who call upon the name of Jesus will be saved. Later in chapter 2, in Acts chapter 2, Peter's going to quote, Joel chapter 2 at the end of it. And say that the days that the prophet's speaking of are right now as he's preaching. That stranger on the beach was a young college student. He was spending his mission trip, his, his summer on a mission trip in Daytona Beach. Sharing the gospel of Jesus. While I'm sure he didn't know this, God sent that young man as a gracious warning for me to wake up. His words exposed the idols of my heart, which were seeking to find pleasure and security and satisfaction in all the wrong things and all the things of this world rather than the God whom I said I believed in. And he pointed me to the truth the prophet points us all to this morning. That all who call upon the name of Jesus shall be saved. All who trust in the gospel of grace can be saved. New City Catechism says, ask the question, what is our only hope in life and death? That we are not our own but belong both in life and death to God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. The prophet is presenting us with that truth here, brothers and sisters. I'm not going to make a direct connection to difficult things in your life that the Lord sent them to you. I can't do that. But I can make this statement to you. God is not absent from any of them. And God is a gracious and loving God who wants to teach us and all of them. 
And when difficulty happens in our life, when things feel like they've been snatched from under us, if we pay attention, God in His grace can expose our hearts and force us to ask the most important questions. Where exactly is our trust at? Where are we seeking true security and satisfaction? When the things of this life, when the things we love so much are pulled from us, we're forced to ask those questions. I ask you this morning, are you trusting in this life and eternity in the Lord Jesus Christ? If not, you are trusting in a vain idol that will not satisfy your soul. Are you trusting in Jesus as the full satisfaction and the security for this life and for the next one? If not, you're chasing an idol and you need to hear the call to wake up from this text. Because as believers today, yes, there was a great day of the Lord that came on Calvary where the Son bore the judgment due His people for us. The Bible makes very clear there is another day coming. There is a great day coming when Christ will return. And just like the people in this day, our only hope is to You, O Lord, I call. We sift down to the bottom of your life and remove all the clutter. That must be your confession. When that day comes. And it's that confession to you, O Lord, I call, which brings us to the table this morning. I have three points of application from this book. We're going to use those kind of as the means in which we take the Lord's Supper this morning. And they're this we need to test our hearts before the Lord, we need to rest in the gospel of grace this morning. And we need to live today in light of the conclusion. There is a great day of the Lord coming. We need to live for the glory of King Jesus and allow that day to shape our present walk today. So in a moment, you'll be called forward to come and partake of the Lord's Supper. If you're a believer this morning, if, if to you, O Lord, I call as your confession as a believer this morning, we invite you, the table is open for you. If not, we want you to sit back and reflect upon what we've heard. We, all of us today are going to assess the idols of our heart before we take the supper. Because we all have them. The question, as, as, as if we are God's people, the question of a believer, of a Christian is, how do we respond to them? Do we respond in covering them up and hiding them and trying to just deal with them on our own strength? Or we honestly lay them at the feet of Jesus? And find freedom and forgiveness in Him. That's what believers do. And that will be the call today as we come to the table. So if you're a believer, you will be free to come in a moment. And you will come through the middle aisle. You'll take both the cup and the bread and go back around to the outside. If you need someone to bring some to you, you can't come forward. Just stay seated and the usher will bring you, you the elements, okay? We're going to kind of follow the rhythm of this text, okay? And we're going to... Test our hearts before the Lord. I'm going to do that with a time of reflection this morning. Asking those probing questions of our life. Where our trust is. Where our security is. Are we seeking after the pleasures of this life? Trying to find security and satisfaction outside of Christ. I'm going to do that with a small moment of reflection. Then I'm going to read a, an old Puritan prayer. It's not my words. It's a prayer. But I want us to hear them together. And then we'll be called to come to the table after I pray. Take a moment, we'll reflect, and then I'll lead us in a time of prayer. Oh God, may Thy Spirit speak in me that I may speak to Thee. 
I have no merit. Let the merit of Jesus stand for me. I am undeserving, but I look to Thy tender mercy. I am full of infirmities, wants, sin. Thou art full of grace. I confess my sin, my frequent sin, my willful sin. All my powers of body and soul are defiled. A fountain of pollution is deep within my nature. There are chambers of foul images within my being. I have gone from one odious room to another. Walked in a no man's land of dangerous imaginations. Pried into the secrets of my fallen nature. I am utterly ashamed that I am what I am in myself. I have no green shoot in me, nor fruit, but thorns and thistles. I am a fading leaf that the wind drives away. I live bare and barren as a winter tree, unprofitable, fit to be hewn down and burnt. Lord, dost thou have mercy on me? Thou hast struck a heavy blow at my pride, at the false god of self, and I lie in pieces before thee. But thou hast given me another master and Lord, thy son, Jesus. Now my heart is turned towards holiness. My life speeds as an arrow from a bow towards complete obedience to Thee. Help me in all my doings to put down sin and to humble pride. Save me from the love of the world and the pride of life for everything that is natural to fallen man and let Christ's nature be seen in me day by day. Grant me grace to bear Thy will without repining and delight to be not only chiseled, squared, and fashioned, but separated from the old rock where I have been embedded so long, and lift from the quarry to the upper air where I may be built up in Christ forever. Amen. Church, as we come forward, receive the elements, we'll sing a song during that time, and then... uh, we will, I will lead us in taking uh, the elements together uh, as we finish singing.